podcast listeners, I hope you had an extraordinary Christmas and New Year's. Now, if your life is like mine, we're back to our normal routines. Although for me, publishing a new podcast every Tuesday is my new normal, and I'm so grateful for our growing batch of loyal listeners. Your time is precious. I don't want to waste it. Not a single instant. I hope you will feel inclined to share this show with friends and relatives on Facebook or Twitter or wherever you share things that you care about. We're very close to launching our Professional Storytellers Workshop, which I feel confident will equal or exceed the quality of any similar online class because, if you haven't already realized it, I won't pull any punches. I'm blunt. I'll tell you exactly how to write successful stories and how to sell them, how to make money with them, and hopefully I'll help you to discover more quickly than any other instructor how to recognize if you have what it takes. I know there are many professionals who might feel inclined to hold back some information they might consider to be secrets because, well... Far too many people feel the pie is very small in this world. Does a successful novelist really want to give you the best information they possess? Do they really want the market flooded with competitors who know everything that they know? In my case, I do. I'll teach you everything, provide you with every tool you need to tell great stories. I have several motives for doing this, and the primary one, I freely admit, is religious. In fact, if you think my instructions are going to keep secular skills separate from religious values, you're mistaken. I never separate those two issues, ever. Sometimes I'm actually disappointed when I read a story or watch a movie created by people with strong religious values only to see their efforts fall flat because they didn't understand how storytelling works, and in a sense, their powerful messages never really saw the light of day. We've all seen terrible movies or read terrible stories by fellow Latter-day Saints and fellow Christians, and often we adopt Thumper's rule, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Okay, that's probably a wonderful policy for most people to adopt. In that case, your opinion isn't really expressed until it comes time to patronize the next book or movie that that artist creates. You simply don't buy it, and often the artist is genuinely bemused. But I thought everybody loved what I did. They all said how wonderful... No, that's not my objective. I sincerely want Latter-day Saints, all Christian artists, to be able to compete with the very best that any other artist from any other value system can create. As on any front in any area in your present world, we are at war with the adversary. Obviously, he's been about as successful as he can possibly be at recruiting great storytellers and artists to publicize his agenda in Hollywood and other places, There's no shortage of highly talented filmmakers and novelists and artists who promote the adversary's twisted values and wicked agenda wherever we look. I'm working for the other side. And it is a war. 
And if you don't accept that, or, well, you'd rather couch it a little differently and not be so direct and defining things so succinctly, don't sign up for my workshop. Well, maybe you should sign up for my workshop. Maybe you should sign up more than anyone else because I'm not going to mince words and I'm not going to gloss over my objective. I want my listeners to be the absolute best at what they do. And I want them to do so without compromising a single eternal value. I want to prove that this objective is not only possible, it's imperative. So put me to the test. See if I can't successfully demonstrate how that is done. Anyway, we're close to releasing that workshop here on Forever LDS, and I'm determined to make it everything that I've promised. Nobody else, as far as I can tell, is doing anything quite like it. I'm looking for students, graduates, raw, irrepressible talent who will publish stories, who will sell screenplays, and who will make an impact on this world. Let's face it, this generation is increasingly hungry for more and more media content. And wow, is the adversary far ahead of us in taking command over this ever-expanding marketplace. I mean, we can argue all day about how we should be putting our time to better use than watching YouTube, playing Xbox, or watching Netflix for hours on end. And I actually hope those arguments take hold. I'm no less frustrated than any other parents that my kids are so all-consumed by screens. Computer screens, TV screens, device screens. Do you realize that there was a time when parents used to get frustrated with kids when they sat there and read books all day long? Go outside and play, you little urchin. Go hiking. Take up a hobby. Anything except reading all those, those novels. Well, now we're grateful when our children seem capable of focusing their attention on anything besides a device with a screen. We have this rule in our home that kids can only use a screen on days during the week with a T in it, Tuesday, Thursday, or Saturday. And even that's much more liberal than some LDS parents, and I admire those families who impose stricter rules. Because I've found that on non-screen days, instead of watching my kids turn their attention to alternate hobbies or go outside and play... They just sit around on the couch and whine about how bored they are. Listen, I realize some of this is generational. I know that any efforts to turn back the clock and wish for a day when the Internet and Facebook and PlayStations and Amazon and Netflix and iTunes didn't exist is not going to happen. And in moderation, much of this is actually good and beneficial and positive. But that's the key word, isn't it? Moderation. Well, some people's definition of moderation is definitely going to be different from other people's. And personally, I love storytelling. I love movies. And I also love to read. More and more, I find that I prefer nonfiction, but that's neither here nor there. The point is that if you can't beat them, join them. But do so wearing the armor of God. Do so with the intent to create powerful media that preserves and even promotes your religious Christian values. So I'll do my part. I'll share whatever I can share that helps LDS artists to compete. Listen, I could talk about this topic forever, and there's a need for it. Helping parents to take back 
control of their households from the onslaught of secular and even corrupting media. Honestly, I think that theme will always dominate the podcast that I create. Today, I wanted to focus on something even more fundamental, even more sacred, because if you can't get a grip on the fundamental values that define what it means to be a Latter-day Saint, to operate your life according to the gift of the Holy Ghost that's in you, all other advice about controlling what your kids are doing or controlling what you are doing is a waste of breath. I think we need to back up slightly. In some cases, not so slightly. Back up significantly and reassert the fundamentals that define your own personal opportunity to inherit eternal life, to return to abide forever in the presence of your God. Man, we just got serious, didn't we? I sense that even the church is striving to reassert those fundamentals. I mean, don't you feel that? Or am I the only one? Obviously, the church asserts the fundamentals of how to govern our lives all the time. Yet lately, I've been particularly impressed and relieved by the church's effort to promote the idea of living the Sabbath day more fully. If you're not aware of the church's effort to emphasize that value, I guess it means you haven't been attending your meetings lately. This is certainly not a forgotten value. It's not new. But boy, have the brethren been laser-focused on making sure that its members, that you and I, recognize the importance, the sanctity, sacredness of living that commandment. As I heard Elder Nelson state when they showed him speaking from the pulpit during priesthood class last week, when Latter-day Saints strive to keep the fourth commandment, it makes it easier to keep all other commandments. It increases our capacity to keep all the other commandments. That's a promise from the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and it's powerful. No, it's not something I've never heard before, but it hit me with a bigger punch. And isn't that the intent of teaching and reteaching the same principles week after week, year after year? Because our lives change. The struggles we are faced with transform and alter and sometimes even become more pronounced. And suddenly, the same principle that you've heard so many times has a greater impact than it ever had before because the message becomes more personal. It became more relevant and meaningful because of our particular circumstances. That's why we read and reread and reread the Book of Mormon and other sacred scriptures because the events of our lives are ever changing. They are never stagnant. And if we are sincerely striving to keep the commandments and not allowing some malignant sin to cut us off from the Spirit, we experience a fresh awakening of the things we need to do to advance our progression in mortality, to reach a loftier spiritual plane. Listen, if you sometimes feel that you're stuck in a spiritual rut, not progressing, maybe even backsliding slightly or significantly, you're not alone. I've certainly been there. And what seems so ridiculous sometimes is that I know exactly what areas of my life I have to change to get out of that rut, but I don't change them. This podcast, if I may be permitted to confess, has actually inspired me 
to have a spiritual reawakening. And that reawakening feels transformational. It feels glorious. And I owe it to my web designer, Jared Butters, uh, the composer of our opening theme, Michael Bonmiller, and other generous contributors. And you, I owe you for that reawakening. Just like any other opportunity we have to teach or bear testimony, it's the teacher who benefits most. So I'm grateful. I'm so grateful for this chance to do this podcast. Whether or not it benefits my listeners, I'm a better person because of it. And I don't want to go back. We're certainly a long ways from having this podcast pay for itself, but I've enjoyed the experience immensely. The experience of having so many of the wonderful things that I've learned because of my rather unique career, things it seems that I never get a chance to write about. Right now, these things seem to pour out so abundantly, almost effortlessly. I can only pray somehow that someone else besides me is being blessed. This is a privilege. It's an unparalleled privilege to bear witness of this gospel and so many marvelous things that testify of it. Listen, I'm no spiritual giant. I'm just an ordinary guy with all the same flaws as other people I've met, and maybe a few extra flaws thrown in for good measure. But if I have some gift of communication, storytelling, philosophy, whatever, I'm honored to share it. If I didn't, God would just find somebody else, so I'm honored. Thank you. Don't thank me. Thank you. Everything I am is interconnected with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without the Savior and his atonement, I'm nothing. All of us are nothing. This fact has been confirmed for me more times than I could possibly count, so it's probably sad and bewildering that I seem to forget it every day. I forget it as soon as I, I get behind the wheel and some stoplight takes too long to turn green. I forget it the instant I misplace my car keys or stub my toe or become irritated at a family member for the stupidest thing. I'm quite certain I forget it far more often than I remember it. I have to stop and think to remember my blessings, to remember the miracle of Christ's atonement for me. It doesn't come to me naturally, and I'm a little ashamed of that, more than a little ashamed. Revelation is such a simple thing. It's astounding how complicated we sometimes make it. Much of the world doesn't even know that it exists. Many Christians are convinced it no longer occurs. And yet I've experienced it so often that I'm quite sure I've had moments where I no longer appreciate how abundant, how overflowing it really is. If you're not experiencing this phenomenon on a weekly, daily, sometimes hourly basis, there's a reason. And if you have the gift of the Holy Ghost, you know what that reason is. You know it. You hardly have to close your eyes and focus your thoughts, and it will be revealed to you why this phenomenon is not as abundant in your life as it should be. I'm not talking about grand visions or seeing angels or daily dictations of God's will word for word into your mind, although such events do happen and far more frequently than most of us probably appreciate, I'm talking about that still, small voice. Or as it says in DNC 85.6, that still, small voice which whispereth through and pierceth all things. 
I spoke the other day about how difficult it is to describe this to someone else, but still small voice are three words that seem to capture it most profoundly. The feeling, the nudge, the comfort. Sometimes it takes practice to hear that voice, but mostly it just takes repentance. God can't teach an unrepentant soul. A wall goes up, a wall of our own making, that the Spirit generally cannot penetrate. Sometimes it penetrates anyway as an act of pure mercy on the part of our Father in heaven. But generally, his influence is blocked. The Savior made it possible to disintegrate that wall. It fades with repentance. Have you ever experienced a famine of personal prayer? There must be a few people who know what I'm talking about. This is one way of describing those periods in a person's life where getting down on your knees seems such an incredible burden. Then focusing your mind long enough to actually say something meaningful is even more of a burden. I've experienced that. And every time I overcome it, I marvel how I ever forgot and why I allowed myself to be deceived again into thinking the act of prayer is unnecessary or unproductive. Sure, just like you, I've sometimes fallen to my knees with the most heartfelt prayer and felt like the Lord's response was total silence and a feeling of utter emptiness. Sometimes this was because I knew I ought to be doing something different and I was stubbornly refusing to do it. But at other times, that silence has seemed unprovoked and undeserved. That's okay. It passes. A little faith, a little persistence, and the rewards consistently outweigh the efforts. I don't really understand this logically. Males are often prone to overthink things, and I confess to being as guilty as any other male, so indulge me as I ask, why does God want to hear from me so badly? He already knows what I want even before I ask for it, right? So why ask? I don't know. I really don't. I just know that's how it works. Ask and you shall receive. Don't ask. And I guess you're living by the seat of your pants. As it says in 2 Nephi 32.8, For if ye would hearken unto the Spirit which teacheth a man to pray, ye would know that ye must pray. For the evil spirit teacheth not a man to pray. Well, if the evil spirit is determined enough to involve itself in or even care about teaching a man not to pray, prayer must be a pretty essential thing. Why? Because that's where revelation happens. That's where the nudges become reality. I remember when I was a new member of this church, I'd sometimes listen to fellow members talk about the most profound spiritual experiences. One of my early bishops used to actually talk about the temple and, and how often he literally saw the spirit of the individual whose work he was performing. I'm sure we've all heard of profound, dramatic experiences like these. Now, to be honest, if I'd had such experiences, you'd never hear about them. I wouldn't talk about them, at least not in such a general forum. Some experiences, I'm convinced, are so sacred that the Lord may demand that you never talk about them, not unless he commands it, and only in the most sacred of circumstances. 
It's a matter of trust. It may even be a test. Can the Lord trust you to keep your mouth shut, to keep things sacred? Obviously, the carnal man is highly tempted to boast about such things, to elevate their spiritual status, or maybe just to be the center of attention for a few minutes. And I make no judgment about my former bishop. He was obviously stressing the importance of temple attendance and may have felt fully authorized to mention these experiences. But let me confess right now, I've never had an experience like that. Never seen the spirit of a loved one or a stranger who has passed into the world beyond. I've never seen an angel. I've had other experiences that I'm not going to talk about, some that I've never talked about. But nothing so dramatic as conversing with an angel. Those who have, I don't doubt your word at all. This experience might be extraordinarily common, just hasn't happened to me. And I received some comfort for that by reading 3 Nephi 12, 1 and 2. The Savior is speaking to his 12 disciples in the New World, and he tells them, Therefore, blessed are ye, if ye shall believe in me and be baptized, after ye have seen me and know that I am. And then the next verse. And again, more blessed are they who shall believe in your words, because that ye shall testify that ye have seen me, and that ye know that I am. Yea, blessed are they who shall believe in your words, and come down into the depths of humility, and be baptized, for they shall be visited with fire, and with the Holy Ghost, and shall receive a remission of their sins. That actually sounds pretty good. More blessed, because I believe in the testimony of others, as to the marvelous things they have seen? It appears that I don't actually have to see the Savior or see angels to be blessed. Not that I'd avoid such an opportunity. I think it would be very cool beyond my ability to describe it, if I was even allowed to describe it. However, it seems my spirit, my soul, is equally sensitive, maybe more sensitive, to testimony alone. Shucks, actually seeing an angel didn't help Laman and Lemuel much, not in the long run. So I'll take the blessings of believing the testimonials of honest and righteous men and women. I'll believe their words and await the visitation of fire and the Holy Ghost, and best of all, receive a remission of my sins. That'll do me. And if someday I'm judged worthy of more, let it be on the Lord's timetable. My testimony and conversion has to be one of the simplest stories out there. I'll tell you the expanded version, pleading with you not to fall asleep. This is a story I feel I am permitted to disclose whenever I feel so inclined. I was a sophomore in high school. I had a friend named Eric Vesterby. He lived in a small town, more of a trailer park actually, called El Jabel, Colorado, between Aspen and Glenwood Springs. Eric and I were best friends in grade school. He was an outdoorsman of the highest caliber. He taught me how to ski, and he and his father first introduced me to Frost Cave on Cedar Mountain, which is such a big part of the tennis shoes series. During grade school, of course, Eric lived in Cody, Wyoming. When we were in about the fifth grade, Eric's family joined the Mormon church. I never thought much of it at the time. 
I do remember LDS missionaries riding up to his house on bicycles, offering me their widest smiles. But Eric never really talked about what they were there for, and it certainly didn't affect any of our adventures. Then, in the sixth grade, tragedy, Eric's family moved to Colorado. After this, I only saw Eric during the summers, when I was flown to Colorado and where our adventures seemed to pick up right where they left off, with one slight difference. On Sundays, I joined Eric and his family as they attended their LDS ward in Aspen, Colorado. Now, I'm leaving out a lot of stuff, first and foremost, that Eric was not my first friend who was a Latter-day Saint. Technically, that was Brent Hawkins in the third grade. And back in those days, it seemed almost unavoidable that if you got to know a Latter-day Saint long enough, he was going to bear his testimony to you. I still remember Brent telling me he knew his church was true and that the Book of Mormon was true, etc., etc., etc. Can you imagine that? This was a feisty, no-nonsense generation of Latter-day Saints. Everyone was bearing their testimony to you. I sometimes would listen with interest, and sometimes I would make fun of them to their faces or behind their backs. Never stopped them. These kids and adults, during the decades of the 60s and 70s and maybe into the early 80s, were relentless testimony bearers. I don't know what changed. I'm not exactly sure when this cultural trend ended, but it did end. I don't think nearly as many of our kids are doing that anymore. We might be hard-pressed to find a high percentage of our adults who have the nerve to bear their testimony so often. But back then, it was so commonplace that it almost got to the point that you just nodded and shrugged and said out loud or just silently thought, Well, I guess that's what you're supposed to do. You've done your duty as a Mormon. Glad I could help you perform your duty. However... That summer after my sophomore year in high school, something different happened when I visited my friend Eric in Colorado. An LDS event known as a youth conference took place sometime during those weeks. And since Eric was going, actually, I felt I had to go along as well. It was a great event and involved a raft trip down the Colorado River and a dance and other activities. And among those was an event called a fireside. Now, we all know what firesides are today, but back then I didn't have a clue. The speaker was a man named Brenton Jorgensen. Now, Brent and his brother Blaine are two of the first generation of LDS fiction authors. I got to know them both very well years later, but here I am, about 15 years old, and this man is giving a speech to all the attendees of this youth conference, and I'm sitting there in the audience only understanding about half of what he's talking about. Then Brother Jorgensen told a story. I don't remember the point he was making by telling this story. Frankly, I don't remember any other details of his speech. But he told a story about this young boy named Joseph Smith and how when he was seven years old, he had to endure this terrible operation where a diseased piece of bone was cut away from his leg and how he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. And I'm not even sure I... I knew who Joseph Smith was at that time. In any case, it was, it was certainly the first time I'd ever heard this story. And something happened. Something overwhelmed me. 
I'm, I'm going to do my best to describe it. I felt a burning, tingling sensation that started in my chest and spread out, literally spreading down my arms and legs until I felt like I was glowing. A message entered my mind, and the message was very simple. Pay attention. This boy, this man, Joseph Smith, is important. That's it. That was the message. Now, I know I don't have the greatest memory in the world, but I recall this event down to the last detail. The feeling that overcame me lasted about a minute, and then it faded. Then it disappeared altogether, and I never felt it again, not for three more years. Interestingly enough, another event occurred around this time that I believe was equally profound, but it didn't take place in Colorado. In fact, it had nothing to do with Latter-day Saints. I was a dishwasher in high school at a place called the Irma Hotel and Restaurant in Cody, Wyoming. Irma was the daughter of Buffalo Bill, and this hotel and restaurant was named for her. Like any dishwashing job, it was pretty disgusting. But I sort of became immune to it, and to this day when my kids act all grossed out by having to clean the food off other people's plates, I have no hesitation diving right in and demonstrating how it's done. Anyway, many of my workmates in the Irma's kitchen were staunch Grace Bible Baptists, and they often could be induced to share their feelings about Jesus Christ. As I recall, they were particularly obsessed with the Second Coming and the events of the last days, and gave me a selection of pamphlets that talked about the Antichrist and an account of those godless communists who would eventually form the one world government that would be in place when the Savior returned. These pamphlets were like comic books, so they were very readable. I, I think I was actually pretty agnostic at this time in my life. I wasn't sure I wanted to be committed to any religion. I liked the freedom of not being committed to anyone else's belief system. Then one day, and I remember this like it was yesterday, I was all alone washing pots and pans in the Irma Hotel, the most unappetizing job of all the jobs in my purview. And a thought struck me. Why it struck me at this particular moment, I don't know. But it occurred to me, it hit me. Not with any kind of burning or tingling, but with the same kind of undeniable power. That Jesus Christ was real. His story wasn't just fiction. Not a fable, not superstition. He really was the savior of the world. And those are pretty profound concepts for a high school kid. Especially well up to his arms in grease and soap. And I certainly didn't fully understand the complete ramifications of what it meant. The ramifications didn't matter. See, I think that's the challenge for adults who try to open themselves up to this kind of experience. Their brains are often flooded with the consequences and ramifications. I guess those things don't seem to matter as much to an adolescent. This was pure truth, and there wasn't any kind of sophistry or worldly knowledge or nonsense to water it down. It just was. Simultaneously, I was taking a class offered by my high school civics teacher, Phil Robertson, who just happened to also be Mormon. I'd already had my experience in Colorado by then. In fact, I'd had several dozen actual testimonies from other LDS kids and from the local seminary teacher. 
and from so many others born to me. So I asked Mr. Robertson one day how he felt about his own religion. I asked him if he believed it was true, and I still remember the look in his eye. Twinkle is the word, except it sounds so cliché now. Anyway, he looked right into my eyes and said, It's a little more than belief. I could tell he wanted to end the conversation right there. I mean, we were on school grounds. I don't think the rules were as stringent back then as now, but there was still some risk that if it became known that he was teaching religion to one of his students, he might get into a lot of trouble. Still, I persisted and asked, Why do you think it's a little more than belief? So, Mr. Robertson... To alleviate any controversy that might surround teaching on the campus of a public school, invited me out to his home, and for the first time in my life, I learned the plan of salvation. I mean, Mr. Robertson had this flannel board with cutouts of the sun, the moon, and the stars, spirit, prison, and paradise, and he sat there, pasting these cutouts to the board and outlining every essential detail of the plan. I should explain my mindset at this particular time. I was curious, that's all. I was hungry for knowledge, but I had no intention of joining any church. I had this very romantic notion of starting my own private religion. I'd probably call it Heimerdingerism, and adopt as my church the summit of a beautiful mountain. I mean, you've heard that sometimes spelled out before, that kind of idea. It's almost become a cliché. Well, I liked the idea. It sounded very appealing. But there was one thing about what Mr. Robertson taught me that night that penetrated the pre-existence. That made sense to me. It was like a light bulb going off in my consciousness. I decided that whether or not I ever joined another religion, the concept of a pre-existence would be incorporated into Heimerdingerism. And then I went to BYU. Why in blue blazes did I go to BYU? My ambition was to be a filmmaker. I had my whole life laid out to become the next Steven Spielberg. And the obvious schools to attend for someone with that ambition were USC or UCLA. However, when I heard that BYU had a film school, my focus became riveted. Sure, BYU had a film school, but as I've come to realize as I've gotten older, a successful film school has very little to do with the quality of the professors or the curriculum or the equipment. It has to do with connections, who you know, just like many other professions. And in that regard, BYU was a million miles away from the campuses of Southern California that had working industry professionals teaching classes, holding workshops, and hiring out students as interns on big and small budget projects practically every weekend. BYU didn't have those connections. Not really. Oh, they had some, but not the week-in, week-out practical associations that a person needs to establish themselves in this very nepotistic business in order to make a living. None of this would have mattered if it had been explained to me at that time. I was going to BYU. And there's no doubt in my mind that dozens of testimonies I'd heard from so many people had had a very real impact on that decision. Even in those days, getting into BYU was not an easy proposition. I did not take my grades very seriously in high school. My cumulative ACT was 18. My math alone was a 10. 
and if you know ACT, you know 10 is far from perfect. 18 was several points below BYU's minimum requirement for entry. Then, as now, every neighborhood in a given town, whether or not you're a Mormon, is divided out into specific wards. And the bishop of my ward happened to be my junior high school principal, a man named Bruce Benyon. As everyone who's ever applied to BYU knows, before you submit your application, you have to have a bishop's interview. Bishop Benyon conducted that interview. And I, I have no idea to this day what he wrote to BYU's admissions board. It must have been one of the most glowing recommendations he'd ever written for any applicant. Either that, or BYU simply had a quota for non-members attending the university, and I was accepted to fill that quota. In any case, I was accepted. And I remember, for reasons I couldn't understand, I cried, and my mother cried when I received that acceptance letter. Now, I'd been making Super 8 sound films of every length, genre, and variety, including some pretty complex animation, ever since the seventh grade. These efforts earned me what I was told was the largest scholarship the Cinematic Arts Department had ever offered an incoming freshman. Full tuition, and since I wasn't a member, that meant it was higher than tuition for a member. The professor over the scholarship committee, a wonderful man named Max Golightly, also entered one of my films in the BYU Film Festival that year, and it won an award for Most Promising Filmmaker. That award, in turn, garnered an invitation to attend the very first Sundance Institute for Independent Filmmakers, held during the entire month of June on Robert Redford Ski Resort at Provo Canyon. I'll have to talk about that experience later because it's definitely worth its own podcast. But man, oh man, all of a sudden my decision to attend BYU seemed like the smartest thing I'd ever done. Hollywood, here I come. The opportunities just kept rolling in. I made friends that summer who would have made it possible for me to move to Hollywood then and there and dive headlong into a filmmaking career. Only one thing stood in my way. That is, it would stand in my way soon enough. That was a little thing called Revelation. You see, I finally read that volume called The Book of Mormon my first semester at the Y. I'd taken a class in the Book of Mormon my first semester, and reading the book was sort of required, although I hardly needed any incentive to read it. See, I'll be honest, with close to a hundred testimonies from all these Mormon freaks telling me they knew their church was true rattling around in my head, with the first two girls I ever dated giving me Book of Mormons before the date even began, and even my roommate, Jim Brogan, testifying every other week or so about his church, it was really starting to wear on me. By then, I really didn't care if the Book of Mormon was true or if the church was true or not. I'd had the verses of Moroni 10, 3 through 5, repeated to me so many times I could have probably recited them back verbatim. I just never put it to the test. I figured I had to read the book first. I already had faith in Christ, so I felt that I had that element in place. But I decided to finish reading it cover to cover, putting Moroni 3 through 5 to the test. And it was a test. All those people who'd borne their testimony had made it a test. So the very day after I finished reading the last chapter of Moroni, I determined to start a fast. And the next morning, I started to pray. The thought definitely crossed my mind that I was willing 
to receive no as my answer. No was perfectly acceptable. Then I could finally ignore all these brainwashed cyborgs who kept bearing their testimony and promising I could get a testimony for myself. If I received no answer, that also meant no. Life could go on as usual. I could continue to pursue my ambitions and honestly maybe even transform the arts into a kind of religion in its own right. But I was going to sincerely ask. I felt I owed the question at least that much, and I was going to give the matter at least that much respect. I really don't remember secretly hoping if the answer was true or false. I didn't care. At least I convinced myself I didn't care. All an answer meant was that my life would go forward according to the answer I received. At the time, I lived on the seventh floor of Deseret Towers, Q Hall, not exactly the most private location to engage in prayer, so I started walking, walking and talking to God. I walked all the way to BYU's motion picture studio, located some miles away from campus, along the banks of the Provo River. There are still some quiet woods in this location, even to this day, but in those days there were no shopping centers and malls like the ones that now congest every square foot of real estate to the west. And the security wasn't quite so tight in those days. No guard post asking for security badges, just quiet woodlands. So I sought my own vision, like Joseph Smith. I knelt down in those secluded trees and poured out my heart to God, pleading for a yea or nay answer. Nothing came. All was quiet. An empty, silent universe. Surprising, considering the scenery surrounding me was so comparable to that which surrounded a 14-year-old Joseph Smith a century and a half earlier. Nothing happened. Still, I kept praying. I think I was determined enough that I decided to pray for several days if necessary. Up to that point in my life, I'd never prayed for anything with more faith and determination. Again, no was just as acceptable as yes. I just had this inner conviction that I was going to receive an answer. Maybe it was that youth conference in Colorado. Maybe it was that experience washing pots and pans at the Irma Hotel. I just felt when the moment came, I would recognize it. I was very cognizant, probably overly cognizant, of not allowing myself to be self-deluded just because I wanted to feel something, anything, or as if I deserved to feel something. No, I knew the difference. I knew what to expect. Then, around 7 p.m., back on the seventh floor of Deseret Towers, kneeling between the two beds in my tiny dorm room, it happened like the return of a best friend. When I felt it, it lifted me. I I don't think it literally lifted me into the air, but I was floating. It started in my chest and flowed out to every limb, just like before. The confirmation was undeniable. I knew it. This was no longer a belief. I knew the Book of Mormon was true. I knew the church was true. And I would unite myself with it. I would be faithful and loyal to it for the rest of my life. Revelation. New revelation. Real communion with something greater than oneself. A genuine condescension of the most powerful force in the universe 
the shaper of planets, suns, and galaxies decided I was worth speaking to, sending a confirmation. Oh, there's always going to be pundits and psychoanalysts who brush off my experience as a self-delusion, an undigested bit of beef or a fragment of underdone potato, something more of gravy than of the grave, as Ebenezer Scrooge told Marley's ghost. And occasionally, I've even heard stories of those who claim to have put Moroni 10, 3 through 5 to the test and received no answer at all. I can't judge those occasions, except that I know things can be off, motives can be tainted, we can find ourselves unable to shake off the consequences and ramifications of this kind of life-altering event. God doesn't want to curse you by giving you something you're unable or not ready to receive. I've heard of people desperately praying for God to tell them it's not true. Please reveal to me that my parents and grandparents and great-grandparents weren't deceived. Well, that's a pretty misguided attitude. First, pray to get your head right, then pray for truth, faith, sincerity, determination. This is going to change the rest of your life. How badly do you really want to know? God is no respecter of persons. I'm certainly not unique, not special. But I guess the timing was right. I was prepared, and I was determined and I was not going away empty-handed. I presume if you're Donald Trump or the Shah of Iran or Kim Jong-il or Matt Damon that you have the same opportunity to receive the kind of confirmation that I received. But how open is your mind and heart? How willing are you to change? What are you willing to sacrifice? Those questions generally stop folks dead in their tracks from ever sincerely asking for answers or pursuing the appropriate confirmation. Repentance might be a bit of a hurdle, too. King Lamoni and his father admitted outright to murder, yet somehow they earned forgiveness and overcame these obstacles. Most of the world has already dismissed the members of our faith as narrow-minded fundamentalist quacks. For them, the road might just be too long and far to travel. But that's why the Savior revealed all that he revealed about preaching the gospel to the dead in Peter 3, 18-20 and DNC section 138. You want to know something unique about our church? We're not unique about believing in the millennium, a thousand years of peace when the Savior will personally reign. We're just the only ones with any concept of what we're actually going to be doing during that thousand years. Most souls who belong to this earth wouldn't know a temple ordinance from tap water. And so, we got some splainin' to do, as Ricky Ricardo would say, and the amount of work will keep us busy for a thousand years, until mankind is ready for its final judgment. And every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ. This isn't work, though. This thousand years? Not work. This is love. We'll do all this work out of sincere love for our brothers and sisters. Do I look forward to it? I don't know. Pretty caught up with all of today's concerns to even think about it. Then again, maybe I think about it more than most, and that's why I do this podcast. So until next week, stay close to the Lord and open up your heart to Him.
listen, hear his revelations again. Or if you've never heard, your situation might be a bit more urgent. I love this quote from Joseph Smith, and I'll likely repeat it often. Weary the Lord until he blesses you. Those are sacred instructions, and it should give you some sense, not of how you're bothering God by making urgent supplications, just that sometimes he will test us to see how much we really want to know something, or feel something, or resolve something. God bless every one of you who strives to be a soldier in building this kingdom. He needs you. He needs all of us. That is to say, he wants all of us, and he loves all of us. So it is. And so, this is Chris Heimerding, signing off and signing out.